Co-op City was built beginning in 1965 on the grounds of the former Freedomland Amusement Park on the northeastern edge of the Bronx. It was planned as the largest middle-class housing development in the U.S. and as a solution to the problem of affordable housing in New York. Anne-Marie H. San Martino tells the, its story from the perspectives of those who built it and of the people who made it their home in a new book titled Freedomland, Co-op City and the Story of New York. It's published by Three Hills, an imprint of Cornell University Press, and it brings Anne-Marie H. San Martino, professor of history at Oberlin College and observatory, to our show now. Welcome. Co-op City okay. replaced Freedom Land, which was a theme park that had been built on marshland mm-hmm. in the Baychester section of the Bronx. It was a theme park about American history. Was it inspired at all by Disneyland? I believe that it was. I'm not actually much of an expert on Freedom Land, the amusement park. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there there are actually a number of uh, books that are, and you know, other essays mm-hmm. and stuff that are on Freedom Land. Um, that could tell you more about the history well, of the park. It did operate for only four years, from 1960 yeah. to 1964, and closed right. because it wasn't a success. So how soon after was the idea of using that land to create Co-op City proposed? So in 1964, basically, what? so Freedom Land, basically in the short version of this is immediately, the land before Freedom Land, the amusement park, was on it, there had been a lot of discussion about what to do with that particular site. Um, a lot of it was swampland. It was, you know, not super usable. But there was discussion of everything from, like, at uh, one point an airport was talked about, racetrack, you know, stuff, all sorts of options. Um, when, in 1964, basically control of that parcel of land reverted to the borrowers because the Zeckendorf, who had been building Freedom Land, goes bankrupt, whatever, and they basically, the city is looking, and the the Teamsters Union are some of the creditors, whatever, they're working with the city, and basically uh, the United Housing Foundation that builds Co-op City is approached in mid-64 to see if they would be interested in um, building on that land. And it would have its own schools, shops, houses Mm -hmm. of worship, 35 high-rise towers, 236 townhouses that would house over 40,000 people. It would be the largest Mm -hmm. housing development in the United States, the largest cooperatively owned development in the world. Now, when I say Mm -hmm. co-op, what what are we talking about? Uh, Apartments selling for Mm -hmm. hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's actually a great question um, about what co- what, it, what you mean by co-op, because there's many different things that fit within the cooperative ownership model. In this particular example, these were um, what was called limited equity co-ops. So basically what would happen is you didn't buy your apartment exactly. What you bought was a share in the development um, as a whole. Mm-hmm. As it was originally understood um, or, you know, originally proposed in the mid-60s, what you would pay, though, was a $450 per room. Um, so the smallest apartments were three-room apartments. The largest were 6.5-room apartments. And you would pay whatever the room count is times 450 That would buy you into the development. And then you would continue to pay carrying charges, um, uh, which are basically the mortgage for the development, along with operating expenses, utilities, et cetera. And originally, those were pegged at around $22 a room. So, in other words, if someone was occupying the smallest possible apartment, um, they would be they would buy in with less than $1,500, and then they would be paying um, less than $100 per month, and that would include mm-hmm. utilities. And it was seen as an alternative to the suburbs, a, a way of keeping people in the city, because your subtitle mm-hmm. is Co-op City and the Story of New York. To how much is this really the story of New York? Yeah, so I, I mean that in a few different ways. I mean, so first of all, to answer the first part of your question or to respond to the first thing that you said about um, Co-op City as a way of keeping people from moving to the suburbs, in part that is sort of what's going on. So really what's going on is that the city of New York is concerned about a number of different things. One is suburbanization and in particular, you know, white flight um, from the city. 
New York, it's not quite as dramatic as it is in some other cities, but it's certainly a concern in the mid-60s. The other thing they're concerned about is that certain neighborhoods, partially tied to this, you know, because of um, declining infrastructure, lack of investment, et cetera, are, um, you know, both becoming more predatory landlords, becoming more expensive and also, you know, more dangerous. And so Co-op City seems like it's a solution to both of these things. Most of the people that first move into Co-op City are people that there's some who are choosing whether or not to live in the suburbs, um, and this is a different option. Um, and some of them are people who couldn't have afforded to live in the suburbs, but who need sort of good, affordable housing, and this seems to them like a, a good option. Many of them <laughs> people who lived in, near, in the area in the Bronx, but mostly white at the time, wouldn't you say? So Co-op City, when it opens, okay, um, basically winds up being, to represent, it, so it is majority white, and of those Jews, or of those most of the people that live there are Jewish. There are no official official statistics. There's a census that's taken in 1970, but that's before most people move in. Um, and the United Housing Foundation that built Co-op City didn't um, officially release numbers. But um, based on a number of factors, you can kind of estimate about 70 to 75 percent of the first residents are, let's say 75 percent are white and about 70 percent of those are Jewish. Or sorry, 70 percent of, of the total population is Jewish. It's a very small percentage. It's not. This is mostly white, but it actually is not that different from the um, demogra- like the racial demographics of New York as a whole at this time, which, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, is a much more white city than it, than it is today. Now, the land surrounding its structures has settled. It sinks mm-hmm. a fraction of an inch every year, creates <laughs> cracks in the sidewalks and entrance buildings. And we're talking about a huge space. It's, it now has mm-hmm. eight parking garages, three shopping centers, tw- a 25-acre okay. educational park that includes a high school, uh, two middle schools and three grade schools. Uh, the high school, Harry S. Truman High School, has a planetarium on the premises. Yes. There's a power plant, a four-story air conditioning generator, and a firehouse. And more, to, more than 40 offices within the development are rented by doctors, mm-hmm. lawyers, and other professionals. 150, I mean, 15 houses of worship. And then it's adjacent to the Bay Plaza Shopping Center. Mm-hmm. It sounds very appealing. So what were the problems? So there are a lot of problems um, that come relatively early on that I'll, I'll sort of run through. But, um, yeah, I mean, to, but I did want to say quickly to the size, yeah, I mean, Co-op City is, is huge by, I mean, on its own, had it, had, were to have seceded from the state of New York at the time that it was built, it would have been, I believe, the 10th or 11th largest city in New York. Wow. Just automatically. Yeah, I left out the fact that it had, that the Bay Plaza Shopping Center has a 13-screen multiplex movie theater, department stores, and a supermarket. So we're talking about a place where you could pretty much live full-time without ever having to venture out of the area. Right, and well, two things I'll say. One is Bay Plaza doesn't really get constructed until, like, the first construction is really in the late 1980s. So it's not there initially, but there are three other shopping plazas, which are quite a bit smaller um, in the, you know, in other parts of the development from the very beginning. And, yeah, I mean, Co-op City in some ways is designed to be its own sort of world that you wouldn't necessarily have to leave um, for precisely the reasons you're, you're mentioning. It, but it's also the other flip side of that, right, is that it's actually kind of hard to get out of Co-op City. It's in a two-fare zone to Manhattan. Um, you either need to take an express bus or take a bus to the subway, or you can walk over this, like, overpass bridge, but it's, that's, that's harder to do as well. Um, and, you know, the connections to the rest of the Bronx are not actually that great either. Um, so it kind of has to be in some way self-sufficient. Now, here's the crazy part I wanted to mention was that Co-op City, when it was original, the very, very first plan, so were the plans as it was developed, so the apartment now there are 15,372 apartments. But when it was originally planned, it was planned for 20,000 apartments. And, you know, you mentioned the sinking into the, the land. So it's basically it's built, most of it is built on a swamp. Um, and there's like a landfill on top of the swamp. They brought in some done. stuff from Coney Island. <laughs> yes, to- yeah, totally. These huge barges um, brought like all this fill from, from Coney Island. It really was this huge logistical project. Unfortunately, um, they didn't have the right experts 
um, and this, you know, you were mentioning problems, to, you know, basically there were issues with the landfill from the very beginning. It wasn't, I'm, I'm not an expert in these things, but essentially s- settling and sinking began really in the 1970s, shortly after construction was complete. The pilings, I think, weren't deep enough or something. But the thing I was going to mention is the original plans were actually, they were going to take advantage of the swamp environment um, to create what they called a miniature Venice. Um, This wound up being prohibitively expensive. Obviously, they didn't do it. Um, But it's just kind of crazy to imagine that as a plan at all. How how different was it from some of the other big high-rise developments that went up in New York after World War II? Alechester and Rochdale Village in Queens, Mm -hmm. Starrett City, Brooklyn, Roosevelt Island, and Penn South and Manhattan. Were they all Mitchell Lama projects? So here's what I'll say. So several of the projects that you mentioned were not just Mitchell Lama projects. They were actually built by the United Housing Foundation. Penn South is an example of that, as is their Rochdale Village. Rochdale Village directly was the, was the housing development that was bought, built, sorry, right before Co-op City by the same people. It's about a third the size. Um, and it's slightly different, but it's weird. It looks very, very similar to Co-op City. Um, and there's actually a great book about Rochdale Village by Peter Eisenstadt that if anyone's interested in this history, I urge to check out. One thing about the United Housing Foundation, as opposed to some of the other developers that, you know, you're mentioning. So, for example, um, Parkchester was, you know, built by MetLife originally. Um, uh, Roosevelt Island is a product of the um, urban uh, development I forget the exact urban housing development or something commission committee. I'm, I'm butchering that name, but in any event, the United Housing Foundation is a private group, but it's a nonprofit, and it's made up of people mostly involved with kind of unions, kind of left wing, mostly Jewish, but not entirely Jewish politics. They were activists um, with clo- yeah, close ties to the labor movement. Uh, right. They called themselves people of moderate means. Right. Right, and they see the cooperative model as, I mean, you know, a way to build, you know, good affordable housing, taking advantage of Mitchell-Lama funding for, you know, as you said, people of moderate means, people who otherwise would be living in tenements for the most part or whatever. Um, and what we see are like, you know, substandard housing. And what we see here, you know, to come back to your original question is that this is a population of people who, like, by the 60s, the rationale has is no longer just that, like, either, it's like, otherwise these people would be in tenements, it's otherwise these people would be in tenements and these, like, you know, slum housing, or they would be in the suburbs. Like, it's trying to kind of, like, capture people who would be in one of either of those two potential um, situations. And that's true, really, of Mitchell Lama as a whole. What's specific about the United Housing Foundation, the United Housing Foundation is also not uh, mentioned, too, the only cooperative um, developer in New York, but it's by far the largest. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Anne-Marie H. Sammartino. Her latest book, Freedom Land, Co-op City and the Story of New York is published by Three Hills, which is an imprint of Cornell University Press. Didn't you spend much of your childhood there? I spent all of my time, well, almost all, all that I remember. My family moved to Co-op City when I was um, a baby, or shortly after the end of the rent strike in 1976. Um, and, yeah, my, my mom still lives there. One of my sisters still lives there, yeah. Well, you you uh, say that Co-op City's relative isolation, you mentioned uh, the, the problems with public transportation connections, for example, creating a fishbowl effect. Is that why you've said that you found it somewhat stifling as an environment to grow up in? Yeah. I mean, you know, so I was like, you know, growing up, I mean, Co-op City, sometimes people would refer to it positively as like the biggest small town in the world. And some people meant that in a positive way. And I think it could very much be a positive thing for people. I was just the way someone I, you know, we didn't have the means to travel for sure, but I always wanted to travel. I wanted to see other parts of the world or even just other parts of the city. And um, so on the one hand, you know, what I grew to appreciate later on about Co-op City as an adult was this kind of, you know, still sense of community, um, was the fact the affordability, all of this sort of stuff. But there wasn't a whole lot, especially before Bay Plaza, the shopping mall was built for, you know, teenagers 
do or tweens to do. So, you know, it was a great place to be five. But by the time I was like 10, I was starting to, you know, want to see other places. And I found Co-op City to be, um, you know, not necessarily like connected to those other places particularly easily. And so, yeah, I definitely, it took me until, in some sense, writing this book to really grow to appreciate it as a place. Didn't the family of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor mm-hmm. move in? Was she there as well? Yeah. Um, she lived in a building that was not that far from the building that, uh, or my, you know, where I grew up. And obviously, they're all near each other, but still relatively close. And she went to a high school that a lot of people from the neighborhood went to. Um, you know, we're not the same generation, so I didn't know her at all. Um, but Maybe that's why you're not on the Supreme Court right now. I know, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we were we were definitely neighbors for a time. Oh, Co-op City first appeared to be a huge success story for integrated middle class housing mm-hmm. uh, and a reflection of liberal ideals of economic and social justice. How soon did the problems begin to arise? Sure. So there were economic problems. I'll start with that, really, from the very beginning. Um, so, Co-op, the, so Co-op City, like, ground is officially, like, the, the ceremonial groundbreaking is 66, but it really starts in, construction starts in 65. The first residents move in, in six, by the end of 68. And over that time, there's already a couple things going on. One of them is inflation is starting, and there are interest rates are rising. And another thing that's happening, and then there are just these enormous cost overruns. And some of this, for sure, is due to corruption. It's one of those things it's hard to get the exact details of exactly where the corruption was, but in my book I suggest some of what I think was going on. In any event, costs balloon from an original, the mortgage was originally and already gargantuan, uh, $235 million. By the time construction ends in 1972, the mortgage is $390 million. That will um, mean that the mortgage, you know, remember I said, I said before that residents pay a carrying charge, which is supposed to partially cover that mortgage, which meant those, those cost overruns get passed down. And there's a series of increases of carrying charges, essentially, you know, whatever monthly expenses for people that live there. Remember, to to live there, you know, you have to meet certain income qualifications. So this is a strain on people. I mean, you had to be relatively of moderate means. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And as one of the leaders, ultimately, there'll be a rent strike in protest of these carrying charge increases, which I, I talk about quite a bit. Well, we'll so, get to the rent strike in a moment. Right. And But the thing I was going to say is that one of the leaders of the rent strike will say something like, you know, they raised prices to the point where if you could have afforded to move in, you could no longer afford to pay. It wasn't true of everybody, but it definitely was, was a concern. So that so, so economic problems were one set of issues, right? Another set of issues um, had to deal with, um, as you mentioned, infrastructure. You know, Co-op City was built very quickly, and um, corners were cut, especially as economic problems grew. There were attempts to cut corners in terms of, like, the quality of materials and labor and whatever, and in part by building quickly so that you wouldn't have to pay overtime to a unionized um, staff, right? So those, the infrastructure problems are apparent from the very beginning but become really apparent by the late 70s. And then a construction audit, like post-construction audit, is done in the late 70s, which reveals such huge problems as the fact that the entire um, plumbing system needs to be replaced. Um, You know, you mentioned earlier all these garages. All of the garages need to be rebuilt, you know, et cetera, et cetera. One of the garages collapsed, didn't it? Yep. But that's more recent. And, And they discovered when there was, you know, that there were, like, even more problems. And they realized there were. I mean, it was just this cascade um, that really becomes clear as in the late 70s into the 80s. Um, and I'm sure things will continue to be discovered, you know, even now. Um, you know, and so in some ways, though, what that this is, so in the early 70s, one thing that I talk about in the book is Co-op City, as you mentioned, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, community for people of moderate means, and it's an integrated community. Now, is it integrated perfectly? No. But relatively speaking, it's relatively peaceful at a time when lower middle class and working class 
communities, other communities and outer boroughs in New York have more tension. So in that sort of relative sense, it's relatively well integrated. And I suggest several reasons why I think that is in the book. Well, as the early tenants grew older and moved away, the newer Mm -hmm. residents were more likely to be African-American and Hispanic Mm -hmm. residents from the Bronx. Uh, and yep. by 1987, they comprised the majority of residents in Co-op City. Right, exactly. I mean, so Co-op City, basically, you know, as early as the mid-70s, so after the rent strike ends, right around my family was moving in, um, already the um, wait list for an apartment, um, like through Michelama, so to wait list for Co-op City was 90% black and Latino, right? And that meant that, and the people that were most, you know, likely to want to move in or that did move in, you know, these new residents tended to be younger. Um, And so what you saw was by the late 80s, you know, whites were, you know, well, no longer the majority, but that happened earlier and was even more apparent among young people. So you had this, like, combination of, you know, racial detention, but also generational tension um, in the 1980s. And I talk about this some in the book. Um, and then in, in the, the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there was yeah. an influx of uh, former Eastern Bloc immigrants, especially from Russia yeah. and Albania. I'm assuming now there is a few Ukrainians who've shown up. I would not surprise me. Um, I will say that the number of there's not a huge there was an attempt to resettle, um, uh, you know, people from the former Soviet Union, um, and it happens to some degree. But not um, not as much as you might. Say. I mean, there's more press about it than than the reality of it. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are some. You know, just the sheer size of Co-op City, and actually in the early '90s, there's a vacancy crisis. Um, there's like something like ten up to ten percent of apartments wow. are vacant. You know, makes it you know this this place where they think, okay, well, this is a great place to put refugees, right? It's you know, here are available, reasonably good apartments. Weren't many Mitchell-Lama projects in arrears or experiencing significant financial strain by 1974? Why then? Was it yeah. something that had to do with the city? I mean, when I, some of the names so, of the time <laughs> pop up. Right. A. Beam, Felix Roten. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, totally. Gerald Ford was um, president, wasn't he? Yep, this is the, 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 the famous Ford to city drop mm. dead, you know, the fiscal mm-hmm. crisis of 75, right? No, but you're absolutely right. So there are two Mitchell-Lama pro- programs, actually. There's one through the state and one through the city. They basically, they run in very similar ways. There are some differences in the way that financing works, which are a little bit tedious. So I won't go into them now. But, but Co-op City was financed that, largely by the city, while other uh, Mitchell-Lamas were, were, I mean, by the state. Other Mitchell-Lamas right. were largely by the city. Right, exactly. So the city Mitchell-Lamas were in more trouble than state Mitchell-Lamas in the 70s. And so actually a big part of the problem that New York City encounters in the bond market, the reason why, you know, it almost goes bankrupt, it's not the only thing going on, but one big part of it is Mitchell-Lama. And state Mitchell-Lama is in slightly better shape in part because just they're, they're, those state Mitchell-Lama mortgage bonds are not adjustable. They were fixed rate, um, even though there's like different series at different amounts. In any event, um, but but yes, the major, the vast majority, I believe, I don't remember the exact statistic off the top of my head, the vast majority of Mitchell-Lama pro- projects in the mid-70s are having um, financial problems. And a lot of what the, the reason for this is that Mitchell-Lama was designed as a, essentially a subsidy to developers and a, and a way to get an enticement for developers to build affordable housing, but not in any way a, an ongoing subsidy. And so what you start seeing is, you know, by between the inflation of the 70s and the fact that Mitchell-Lama, the program, you know, begins in the, in the mid-50s, you start to see aging buildings, et cetera, um, you know, growing poverty in New York, and all of those things cause a system-wide Mitchell-Lama crisis. Co-op City is really only unique in that, in that it's just so big um, that it winds up having its particular version of that crisis winds up being a bigger issue um, for the state in particular that financed it than some of these smaller developments. The uh, 
the programs provided low-rate mortgages backed by the state of the city along with tax abatements right. to developers and a guaranteed rate of return on investment. And that was they were all financed by publicly traded bonds. So as long as developers promised to build housing designed it, cost no more than 67 times the average salary of residents, mm-hmm. there, there wouldn't be a problem. What, what was the problem, finally? Well, the problem, in part, was that so these bonds were... So what the bonds were basically for the construction of the housing, right? Once, But they're not to help subsidize the operating expenses. But there's still this requirement that the, you know, carrying charges or rent... So you could be a profit and non-profit development or part of Mitchell-Lama. Um, and so there's still this cap, right, on what they could charge. Well, that cap um, starts to make less sense as, you know, the, the operating expenses have grown um, to the point where they don't cover that um, anymore. Also, the city um, Mitchell-Lama bonds were adjustable rate. And so those those bonds are going up in cost. So it's an even bigger, you know, hit. Um, so then what you start seeing is developers, you know, trying to raise prices, you know, raise costs or whatever, um, and this kind of fight within the state, between state developers and residents, you definitely, and Co-op City is a particular version of this, which I can talk about more, but, you know, about the fact that, you know, costs, like, essentially the state and developers have to choose between either keeping developments affordable or having them cover the, you know, costs of operating them and managing them. Weren't the subsidies not only open to non-profit profit developers like the UHF, but also to mm-hmm. for-profit developers like yep. like Fred Trump, Donald exactly. Trump's father. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, I actually found letters from Donald Trump, to, um, at the young, a young Donald Trump in the 1970s talking to state regulators, um, you know, during, you know, during this, this whole period. Did so, he yeah. get his spelling correct in those days? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's interesting. You see some of the, the, the pugnaciousness already in, like, 1973, 1974, the sort of sense of indignation. But, um, yeah, so the the thing is that these develop. So, you know, Mitchell-Lama is open to, you know, nonprofit to for-profit. Um, there's actually been some interesting work that compares um, some of these developments that were, you know, nonprofit and for-profit developments to look at, like, you know, differences in architecture and the resident populations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but but it's definitely not the case. Like, you know, there's it's not solely a nonprofit program. Um, in fact, these sort of public-private partnerships that you see in Michelama, you know, would later on. It's not the only model, but one way of thinking about it is later on you'll see public-private partnerships in New York after the, the, you know, fiscal crisis being used as various ways of, like, trying to cut costs but retain programs, and they'll be used everything from, like, neighborhood improvement, business districts, stuff like that. Um, and this is kind in some ways you could see them look like a precursor of some of those later programs. I want to but return to that, to the fiscal crisis and right. related matters. But first mm-hmm. we have to take a, a little break. Yeah. This is... WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Buildings and bridges are made to bend in the wind to withstand the word of what it takes. All it's steel and stone. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Anne-Marie San Martino. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Freedom Land, Co-op City and the Story of New York. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And we thank you very much. And return to Anne-Marie H. Sammartino, who is chair of the history department at Oberlin College. Uh, her book, the book that we're discussing, is Freedom Land Co-op City and the Story of New York, published by Three Hills, which is an imprint of Cornell University. Okay, let's talk about the thing that we've been circling around, that rent strike. 
which became such a, a major news story. Uh, it was the largest rent strike in American history. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it attracted people like Cesar Chavez, who expressed yeah. solidarity with the strikers. Yeah, I was surprised that I thought that was one of those like archival signs that you're like, oh my God, he wrote this like, you know, telegram of support to the, the strikers. But yeah, I mean, so, you know, we've been talking about the financial strains in co-op city. Um, and the rent strike, so essentially what's happening through the early 70s is carrying costs keep rising. There's an increase in 1970, one in 71, 73, 74. And then there's another proposed increase in 75. Taken all together, those increases would have been 250% of the original carrying charge Mm. amounts that were proposed in 65. So some people were actually being forced out because they couldn't afford it? You know, I don't, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I have not seen any hard evidence that people were being forced out as a result of that, um, but I don't, but I definitely have seen like anecdotal evidence, that was true, but I don't, I, I can't say for sure, but there's certainly the case that it's putting more of a strain on people's budgets, you know, because part of the appeal of United Housing Foundation cooperatives had always been that they were relatively, you know, like, you know, stable and relatively affordable places for people to live. And this, you know, seemed neither stable nor necessarily affordable nor necessarily stable, right? Because of the, the like the sort of drip, drip, drip of increases. And there were so, things like cracked sidewalks, balconies that swayed in high winds. Right. And that's all of that starting to become apparent in this period. It's not a huge part of the reason why the rent strike happens, but it definitely will complicate its aftermath. And I can talk about that later. As for the rent strike itself, basically what happens is that, um, you know, the the people that live in co-op city, another thing to note is that many of them are involved in labor. That's kind of how they even know about the United Housing Foundation. Um, You've got a lot of people that are unionized, a lot of people who come out of this kind of, you know, the the very same, like, left-wing radical tradition that births the United Housing Foundation – know, also are the people that wind up in some ways living there. They're descendants of the Lower East Side on some level. Um, in any event, this agitation against Renstra, against um, these increases, begins in the early 70s. Sometimes it's happening with the United Housing Foundation, but sometimes residents, and increasingly residents, are frustrated with the United Housing Foundation, who they see as sort of carrying water for the state, like that they're not fi- fighting hard enough to protect, um, you know, the interests of residents. So all of this reaches a breaking point in the mid nineteen in, in mid nineteen seventy five. Although you point young, out that it wasn't technically a rent strike. Yes, right, because these people aren't paying rent, right? They're paying these carrying charges, mm. but they specifically call it. It could a have rent been strike. called a carrying charges strike. It wouldn't have really been a good headline story. A hundred percent, right? I mean, the other thing too, this you know, it's, it's better branding, but is that they're doing it to make a political point. They're saying, look, you're treating us like tenants. We're supposed to be co-owners, but you're not listening to our voices. So what we're doing is, like, we really are, since we're basically being treated like tenants, we're being told what to do, we might as well just call this a rent strike to call attention, in a sense, to our plight. Um, And the rent strike was joined by, you know, something close to, like, 80 to 85% of residents. And basically what they would do is, rather than paying their carrying charges to New York State, which is normally what they would be doing, or to the corporation that then would forward that to New York State, they pay it into um, to the street committee, which is known as SC3, Steering Committee 3. Um, I can never get a clear answer on what happened with Steering Committees 1 and 2, but be that as it may. Um, and so they were paying that money instead. So the state is now doesn't have that money. They try and sue. The state tries to force that to be paid. You know, the, the rent strikers, you know, the residents lose, like, court battle after court battle, but they continue to stay out on strike. And while they're doing this, they do become, as you mentioned, kind of a cause celeb on the left. Um, the village voice writes a sort of, you know, glowing profile, that kind of, of Charlie Rose and that kind of thing. It's basically like little people who are standing up for their rights. The rent strike will last for 13 months. And it ends, actually, with resident control of Co-op City. The United Housing Foundation, basically right when the rent strike starts, 
will give up control. They'll resign from the board of Co-op City, and the organization will sink into basically irrelevance after um, after this. They give up on what had been originally proposed as their next project, all of that. Well, it um, nearly bankrupted the New York State Housing Finance Agency. Yeah. For sure, this is actually the one another one of the sort of really interesting things I found. You know, so the United, so New York State, the United, so as as we talked about before, Co-op City is built with these state-backed bonds. They're called moral obligation bonds because the state is theoretically not legally bound to repay these bonds, um, but they're morally obligated. So that's why it's called moral obligation. In any event, the state, so the state has these bonds. Well, the problem is that. The way that it pays back the bondholders is in part with the carrying charges um, from the developments that were built with those bonds. Well, Co-op City amounted to a third, the, 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 the carrying charges of Co-op City were about a third of the total income of the, of the state housing finance agency. So they can't pay back their bondholders. So month after month, they're scrambling, like taking money from pension funds, you know, getting pension funds to loan in, get, um, taking money from other organizations, increasing interest rates this like to, to much higher numbers, in part because they're also, this is happening at the very same time as New York City is almost bankrupt. So the bond markets are just going crazy with all this like New York debt. That and, sounds like today, it, r- rising <laughs> inflation and rising interest rates. No, it totally. I'm wondering if it's having an impact on Co-op City today, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, I mean, I less of one, but we'll uh-huh. talk about that later for sure. Um, yeah, so in this particular context, um, you know, then basically in nineteen in, in May of '76, the a judge issues this ruling, which will finally allow the foreclosure of Co-op City. Um, and the state, in theory, the state's won, but it's actually the last thing that the state wants. Because what they realize is that in that moment, like state officials kind of realize is that they, what are they going to do if they foreclose? What are they going to do with this huge housing development? And so that's actually what prompts them to finally give in and, um, you know, allow the residents to take, take control. Now, I talk about the rent strike a lot in the, in the book, so I'm not going to go into all the details. But the short thing I did want to say about this is that this is, on one hand, a remarkable achievement on the part of residents. Um, and in particular on the part of the strike leadership team um, led by this one kind of very colorful figure named Charlie Rosen. Um, uh, but the other thing to note about it is that when the residents get control of the development, what they really are getting control of is, in a sense, the debt. They're basically being tested like, here. well, okay, fine. You guys think you're better than the United Housing Foundation. We'll figure out how you're going to pay it. And that will wind up being incredibly difficult. Like, it's the United Housing Foundation had made its mistakes and whatever, but now you have basically people who have no training in, you know, real estate management managing this incredibly huge cooperative and tasked with paying off an incredibly huge debt. So the, a coalition of shareholders uh, uh, winds up securing resident control, but that doesn't halt either rising costs or white flight. Right. right. In fact, in some ways, it accelerates um, both. I mean, because one, one of the things that happens during the rent strike is that, um, you know, the, the development is being managed, like the state is constant, is like, you know, only paying the absolute bare minimum for, like, utilities and stuff like that. But maintenance really suffers during the rent strike. So you've got vandalism in buildings. You've got broken washing machines. Um, you know, you're starting to see more of the infrastructure problems we talked about earlier. And so when, the you know, during the rent strike and after the rent strike, you start, that's really when white flight starts from Co-op City. Um, you know, people feeling like, well, you know, nothing is, like, this isn't, like, I don't want to live somewhere that looks like a slum, is what a lot of people say. And that what they're pointing to is, in large measure, is they'll talk about the graffiti, the dirty buildings, et cetera, the elevators that are not working, stuff like that, maintenance issues mostly. But then as, you know, you now have resident control, but the resident controllers are, like, you know, costs are still going up in the late 70s. It isn't until really the late 80s and early 90s that we start to see real financial stability in Co-op City in terms of carrying charge levels. And so that 
Well, also, it's like this sense of like, okay, well, there was all this rhetoric, there's all this upheaval, but nothing's really changed. Things are still, you know, costs are still going up, and that will be another sort of like, you know, factor which will encourage white flight. My guest is Anne-Marie H. Sammartino. Her latest book, Freedom Land, Co-op City and the Story of New York, which is published by Three Hills, an imprint of Cornell University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You interviewed a lot of people in in preparing Mm -hmm. this book. Uh, Did you get a wide range of opinions or was there a certain sense of consensus? You know, I think that there were, it depended on which point you, you talked to people, right? So cer- certain areas of remarkable consensus. Liter- I think literally every person I talked to said their family had moved to Co-op City because it was a safe, um, relatively cheap, and modern place to live. And this was regardless of what whatever racial background people were from, whatever age they were when they moved in. That was just like consensus across the board. Where I started, where I saw some, like, differing opinions was, for example, in the question we were just talking about, about white flight, you know, I definitely had people who used to live in Co-op City said, well, the reason for white flight was basically rising crime. And then I also had people who said, no, what you really saw was sort of, it's not rising crime, it's rising racism. Hmm. Um, you know, and that was something that I spent a lot of time trying to sort of tease out what was going on in that in that period in the book. Um you know, and I think that, for example, there were some people I talked to for whom the United Housing Foundation um, was something they were very aware of, was very important to their experience, why they moved in. There were a lot of people who knew nothing about it, who moved in in the early 70s. I saw some very differing, um, you know, interpretations of the rent strike and what it had accomplished or whether it was worth it. Um, you know, I think one of the things that was really interesting to me as someone who grew up in the development, but, like, I grew up in Co-op City, but well after the rent I have no, I mean, no memory of it. We moved in after it ended. Um, did you go to school there? I did. So I went to, so I went to public school my entire, you know, up, upbringing. Um, in seventh grade, I started to go to um, Hunter High School in Manhattan, but up until that point, I went to school in the Northeast Bronx, partially in Co-op City and partially in another school in the district. So, uh, but again, that gave you a sense of community, at least when you were in the school there. Uh, Sure. But in a way, you you also suggest there was a a sense of oppressiveness in in the fact that uh, so many people were felt almost trapped there. Now, we're talking about the 70s, the Mm -hmm. mid-70s. This is also a time when uh, New York City came close to bankruptcy. Is it related in any way? So, not yes and no. It's more the case that New York City will become bankrupt around the same time as bankruptcy threatens, or really at the same time, threatens the state housing finance um, finance agency for very similar reasons, or at least somewhat similar reasons, and they will both be competing on the bond markets. It's also the case and that, you know, will increase both of their the pressure um, on both of them financially. And also, um, there's this crucial moment in the rent strike where essentially the rent strikers, are there's money. So the, you mentioned before that there's all these schools that are built in Co-op City. Well, they're actually built by the United Housing Foundation, or sorry, but um, financed by the state. And the city is supposed to, because the yeah, education is through the city, is supposed to be reimbursing the state. Um, anyway, the rent is trying to block that from happening. And ultimately, the city does transfer that money back to the state, which ultimately gets used to pay these bondholders. But the reason why the city does this and overrides the interests of the residents is because they know that they're going to need state help with their own, um, you know, financial crisis. And so there are these points of intertwinement, but it's not exactly the same. Now, we mentioned that there were all sorts of problems, uh, b- buildings crumbling. Some people felt some of the buildings were a little too tall, in fact. What, what's happened since the 70s? Have things right. re- settled down? Uh, are the people who are living there now happier than the ones who were living there in the 70s and many of whom moved out? Well, you know, I can't. I, I can't speak for everybody, right? It's an, especially at a huge development like that. But I will say a few things that have changed. One is... Well, it's still economic. there. 
Yes, it's still there. It's recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. And you can't miss it when you're driving along the the North Bronx. It's huge. It is indeed. It is indeed. And um, I'll say, you know, carrying charges was stabilized in the early 90s. So since that point, so since 1991, carrying charges, so resident charges essentially, have not um, have risen by 80%, which is way under the um, rate of inflation over that time, and, and especially way under the rate of increase in housing prices in New York. Um, so, you know, it's now like this you know, pretty good deal. There is a pretty large wait list to get in. Infrastructure-wise, I mean, there's st- there are still ongoing issues, and I'm not sure they'll ever not. But be. the physical plant but, has become more stable in recent years, yes, I yes. gather. You know, I despite mean, and, that partial and, collapse of one garage. Well, and there, so then there was work done to like you know stabilize all of the garages for a while. There's this like sort of Central Park in Co-op City. So one thing to note about Co-op City, right, is is talking about there's 35 high-rise towers townhouse buildings, whatever, it, it looms huge. But once you're inside Co-op City, if you go to visit, there's actually an enormous amount of green space. Most of the development is green space. Anyway, there's this large central um, park in called the Greenway, um, and that was, like, turned into a parking lot for, for a while because basically none of the other, other parking lots could be used. Um, but now that's, that's all been sort of taken care of, et cetera. Um, in general, it's just a much more stable place than it than it was in the era that um, that I write about. Well, you don't write about something that's happened more recently. During January mm-hmm. 2015, an outbreak of Legionnaires' disease yes. sickened a number of co-op city residents, and another outbreak of the of Legionnaires' disease in 2018 sickled more people, one of whom died. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that the COVID pandemic is also had an impact on this because people are living in in such close proximity. Well, and especially because, you know, so Co-op City always was particularly attractive to old people because um, for a variety of reasons, in part, like the financing structure, like you have to buy, like who's likely to want lower housing costs, but be willing to have some savings to be able to pay the equity deposit, right? In any event, um, Co-op City is the largest um, Nork, which refers to naturally occurring. We only have a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there other things that you would like to talk about before we end this? You know, I guess one thing that I, I guess I was going to bring up is just like, you know, Co-op City is this interesting experiment. I mean, in some ways it was very much an experiment, right? You know, what happens when you build an entirely new neighborhood in the outskirts of the city? You know, what does that mean, right? Um and I think it's a useful thing for us to think through as now, once again, you know, the question of affordable housing, especially affordable housing for people, you know, as housing prices get increasingly unaffordable in New York and elsewhere, it's worth looking at the history of places like Co-op City in particular to see um, what it takes to make um, affordable housing and to make affordable housing last. Um, and so I... You know, I have some ideas. We don't have time really to talk about them now, but I do have some ideas about what Co-op City may help reveal about that. But I think it's important for us to think, as we think about the present of affordable housing, to really think about its past as well. Well, looking at the photograph on the cover of these Mm -hmm. huge slabs of buildings, of many-story buildings, there is a sense of anonymity, isn't there? Well, you know what's funny? People, like, I under, I totally understand. And it's true. Like, there's most people in Co-op City, like, even when I was growing up there, I didn't necessarily know. But there's a weird way in which large buildings provide anonymity, but also provide community. Because there's one thing people have to do. They have to pass through the lobby every day. They're taking elevators together every day. People are hanging out outside of buildings. And the fact that, like, you know, all the schools are there. So if you're, like, in middle school and you live in Co-op City, certainly when I was growing up, odds are you're going to a school in, in Co-op City. So you're seeing your neighbors all the time. And it functions in many ways like a vulnerable neighborhood um, more than anything else. And so while there certainly one could be anonymous in Co-op City, a lot of people were, um, it also was a place that allowed for the development of a kind of community, um, not despite the huge towers, but actually in some ways because of that. 
Anne, Anne Marie H. Sammartino is professor of history at our Oberlin College and Conservatory. Her previous book was The Impossible Border, and we've been discussing Freedom Land, Co-op City, and the story of New York, which has been published by Three Hills, an imprint of Cornell University Press. Thank you so much for being such a great guest. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk about the book, and um, have a great day. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineers, Reggie Johnson and Paul DiRienzo, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopez at Large, for all the important work that they have done throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. You can also check us out on Twitter. Uh, Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London located at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Freedom Land by Anne Marie San Martino. So why not make that call now at 212 212- 209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for, for $10, $15, 20 however much you can afford per month. And we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag and other perks to anyone who signs up to become a buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, again, the number... 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax deductible support. Have a great Labor Day weekend and we'll see you next week.